0: My name is Amy McConnell, and I'm a member of the Thursday Night Women in the Word Bible Study, but I um, have the privilege of being on the teaching team, and from time to time I get to be here with you on Thursday morning. So thank you for this opportunity. It's just a huge blessing for me. I had the great privilege of growing up in a church that did an outstanding job teaching the Bible to children. So my whole life I've heard these amazing stories of Noah and the ark and the flood and Daniel and the lion's den. And Daniel's friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace. But it occurred to me this week, we've got a lot of women in Bible study who didn't grow up in those kind of churches, and we have women in Bible study who've never even studied the Bible before. In my small group just last week, four women in my group had never been to Bible study. So as I prepared this week, I kept thinking, what does this story in the second chapter of Daniel sound like if you've never studied the Bible before, and I thought, it sounds crazy. It just sounds like the wildest thing in the world. This crazy king having dreams, calling in his wise men, who are magicians and sorcerers, demanding that they tell him the dream, and then the dream is a statue and a rock, and a rock is going to smash the statue, and I thought, I can't believe they're going to come back next week. If this was their (laughs) first experience with Bible study... So if that describes you, I want to encourage you, do not be overwhelmed. Prophecy is a crazy story, but God has amazing truth and wisdom to share with us here. And if you grew up like me and you've heard these stories your whole life, and you think, I've heard that story, I've studied that 20 times, I'm not going to learn anything new today, I want to encourage you not to be underwhelmed by it, because we serve an amazing God who promises to bring wisdom and understanding and encouragement and peace into our lives and into our experiences because of his word. So that's what I think he has in store for us today. So thank you for coming. Thank you for jumping into prophecy. If it scares you, don't be scared. I think it's important that we kind of take a minute and and talk about what is prophecy and why do we study it. Um, Scripture tells us that God appointed and called out men to be prophets. And the job of a prophet was to communicate God's message. Not the prophet's message, not even the prophet's own words, but they were to be channels of revelation expressing God's word and God's truth to the people. And we have prophets all through the Old Testament. We have prophecy in the New Testament. And the the clearest example of why Daniel is where he is today is because the voice of the prophets were not listened to. The earliest prophets came to the children of Israel and told them, You need to remember God. You need to serve God and God alone. Quit following these evil practices of pagan nations. Quit worshipping their idols. If you don't, the prophets told them, other countries are going to come in and invade. Other countries are going to drag you away and take you to places where you don't speak the language. But the children of Israel did not listen, and the message of the prophets proved true. And that's why Daniel lives in Babylon because they didn't listen to the message of the prophets. We also have this experience right here in this chapter where the prophecy is about what's going to happen over the next thousand years. So prophets are always telling God's message and God's word and God's stories. Sometimes they're telling about something that's going to happen in the... in the. Near future, and sometimes they're telling about things that are going to happen in the far distant future. The things that they told would happen to the children of Israel happened pretty quickly. They were carried away by other countries. And some of the things that they're talking about today, this statue, that's going to happen relatively quickly too, at least within a thousand years. But part of this prophecy is also about the distant future. So if some of these prophecies have already come about and we can look at our history and we can line history up with prophecy and it's already happened, you might be thinking, why bother studying it? We need to understand God's purpose for prophecy. Prophecy wasn't this crystal ball kind of a thing. It wasn't a magic trick where we could look into the future and say what was going to happen. God had a different purpose for prophecy. The first purpose, prophecy is used to show that God is God. We serve a God who desires to reveal himself to us. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to understand his character and his nature. Prophecy is one of the most compelling ways God shows the world who he is. So let's remember that. Prophecy shows that God is God, and prophecy also proclaims God's word. It proclaims God's truth. So why do we want to study prophecy if the purpose of it is to proclaim God and to proclaim his truth? We know, knowing God, knowing his truth, that's what has the power in our lives to change us, to allow us to live in a way that brings glory to God, that reveals him to the world, and that's our purpose. So that's why we study prophecy, not to predict the future. Prophecy is about knowing who God is, and it's about knowing how to live in light of his truth. So that's why we're going to be blessed by studying this prophecy today. God is a God who wants to be known. To me this is one of the most amazing things about his character and his attribute that he condescends to want to have a relationship with us and he shows us who he is in prophecy. On your verse sheet John 17:3 says now this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So God uses his word and and the words that he gives through the prophets to show us who he is and God also orders the events in our world to show us who he is to bring each of us to a place where we have an opportunity to know him personally and he's actually ordering all the events in the world to one day he will bring the entire world to a place where if they don't at least know him personally. They will have to acknowledge him. That's what God's doing in our world. Acts 17, verse 26 and 27 shows us a little bit about God's desire to reveal himself. It says, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We see God's character in the way he speaks to us in the way he controls the events of the world, always trying to proclaim who he is so that we can know him. God reveals himself in in nature and in creation through the words of the prophet, through the life of Jesus, his son, and through his word. I loved that last week when Deb welcomed everyone to Bible study, she said, this is God's love letter to you. In a love letter, we get to know each other and we get to know each other intimately. That is one of the ways that God gets to know us and shows us who he is. Another interesting thing that I learned this week as we studied this, one of the ways God shows us who he is is by allowing periods of darkness in our life, and that's really what I saw here when we studied this chapter. Both King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel are both experiencing these personal experiences of darkness. These are times when the future is unknown, and it's frightening, and it's unsettling, and they can't figure out what they're going to do, and they're going to respond very differently to darkness. I want to tell you about the first time I really recognized this theme of darkness here. It's kind of going through my own troubling time, and God brought an amazing opportunity to me. It was an opportunity that was um, definitely brought from God. It was the result of a very specific answer to a very specific prayer, but it was not the answer that I was expecting. And as as I considered taking this opportunity, I kept looking at my future thinking, this doesn't make sense. I can't see a picture of my future that works with this God. I'm having a really hard time believing this is what you have in store for me because I just can't see it. And it was the strangest thing because in my prayers and even in my journal, I kept saying, God, it's all darkness. I can't see it. I can't see how life is going to work out with you bringing this here as my answer. And so for several days I prayed and I journaled and I kept focusing on this idea, if it's all darkness, God, if you'll just show me what it's going to look like, if you'll just show me how it's all going to work out, I can step forward. About three days of praying like that, I opened my Bible in my assigned Bible reading for that day to the second chapter of Daniel and listened to these words, God knows what lies in the darkness. And light dwells with him. I don't believe for a moment that that was coincidence. I believe that God spoke truth to me those days. I believe he allowed my spirit to interpret this situation as darkness because he knew he was going to show me something about darkness through his truth. And I'm so grateful for that. What he showed me was that you're right. You don't know what's in the darkness. But I'm out there, and I know what's in the darkness. And he showed me that he's a God who promises to bring wisdom and understanding into the darkness. So instead of being paralyzed by fear, this was an opportunity to act with faith and to act in obedience and to just step into the darkness with God, trusting that he knows what I don't. I think that's the opportunity Daniel has here. So I hope, as you did your homework questions and you studied this chapter, and I hope as you listen today, you might take an opportunity to think, okay, what is my darkness right now? What are the things that keep me awake at night? What am I anxious and worried about? Unknown aspects of my future. And perhaps consider God is inviting you to step into the darkness with him, to just demonstrate faith and obedience here, because you know God knows what's in the darkness. And I'm here to tell you, if God is asking you to do that, he has something amazing prepared for you. God is ready and waiting to be there in the darkness for you, and he is going to reveal things about himself that you perhaps had forgotten or hadn't known. He's going to give you a bigger vision of who he is because he wants to be known by you. And God is also going to reveal truths to you in the darkness that you would probably never learn resting confidently in the daylight. So, there's great things that can happen in the darkness. And we're going to talk a little bit about how King Nebuchadnezzar and how Daniel approached darkness. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 2. It's too long. We're not going to read the whole thing. So, I've just picked out sections that we're going to read together today. Beginning in verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamt. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and then we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, then you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Drop down to verse 10. We're going to see their answer. He's not just asking them to interpret the dream. He's saying, read my mind. Tell me what the dream was to start with. Well, they know this is impossible. Their answer is, they answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is angered because he thought he could control these people and get the answers he wanted out of them. And when they can't pass his little test, he orders, let's put to death all the wise men. That sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Kill all the wise men. (laughs) I thought you really saw his insecurity about the future here. And you see his insecurity about his wise men. Also, um, we read he's troubled, he can't sleep. One translation said his spirit was full of anxiety. So he calls on his team. Now listen to who's in his team. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. They don't list him here, but Daniel was also considered a wise man, Daniel and his followers. And just in the chapter before, Daniel had proven himself. The king had said, you have ten times more wisdom than all my magicians and enchanters and astrologers. But Daniel's wisdom and understanding comes from God, and that sets him apart from these magicians and enchanters. Uh, I think it's really important that we recognize these guys were evil. They were involved with the occult. They were men who practiced exorcisms, incantations. They cast spells. They looked at the stars to try to predict the future. They looked at the stars to try to contact dead spirits, evil spirits, and their gods. There were lots of cultures during this time that were were dependent and participated in occult practices, but Babylon exceeded all of them by institutionalizing the occult practices. It's like they brought them onto the president's cabinet. It's like they put them on the White House staff. That's how attached they were to this um, evil practice in pursuing idolatry and contact with evil spirits. It occurred to me uh, when I was studying this, it's a little bit like the world of Harry Potter, where they have the Ministry of Magic and the Professors of Dark Arts, except the big difference is this isn't fiction. This is not a book or a movie or a fantasy. This was real life. The leaders and the people were falsely putting their trust and their confidence in all these evil practices. So we see that the actions of Nebuchadnezzar here are both desperate and deceived. That's first on your outline. This is his version of darkness. He does not know what's coming in the future and he likes to be in control and it's scaring him. He's having disturbing visions that he can't understand. And even though he is the most powerful ruler that the world has ever known at this time, he doesn't know the future. And I think he's a little worried that he's been taking advice from the wrong people. So in desperation, he makes up this test. He's going to determine if his magicians and his astrologers really do have supernatural powers. He is so desperate in trying to control their actions and control the outcomes that he even says, if you can't do what I'm asking, I'm going to have you killed. I'm going to have you cut into pieces and your houses turned down. I personally think... He would only do this if he were doubting their ability and their sincerity. And when he realizes that they can't do what he's asked them to do, now he's doubting all the advice they've given him before then. Now he's realized that perhaps he's just been manipulated. So I think that's his darkness. And I think in darkness, he acts in a way that's desperate and deceived. And ultimately, that darkness leads him to sin. He ruthlessly orders the execution of all the wise men, all of them, including Daniel and including Daniel's friends, even though they have demonstrated wisdom and understanding and they have been able to do what the king has asked up till this point. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar has placed himself in the position of one of these ruthless false gods and he's... Ordering things that can't be done, and he's not listening to reason, and he's not listening to his people. I think he has lost all perspective here. Well, their answer, of course, is very telling. They say, what you ask is too difficult. It's not even possible. No one can reveal this to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. The word gods there was very telling. This is gods with a little g, not a big g. And it's gods with an f on the end of it. So it's plural. And we have to always remember, they worshipped this whole pantheon of made-up gods. They didn't have one god that they worshipped. They had a whole host of gods. And you know what they were? They were little... Sticks and pieces of wood that they had carved themselves into idols, and metals that they had cast into statues and put them up on a shelf and worshipped them and bowed down to them. These were the idols that the people worshipped. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This is such an important distinction. The gods of the people are little g-gods that they've made with their own hands, their idols. But the Lord made the heavens, the heavens that cover you, the creator of everything, not the little image you've created yourself. Daniel refers to God as the God of heaven, not some man-made idol. And I don't know if you notice this, but in this chapter, Five times Daniel refers to God as the God of heaven. Heaven that surrounds you. Not the God of of the harvest. Not the God of fertility. Not the God God of the wind or of the stars. The God of everything. It's an important distinction and it's an important opportunity for them to learn who God is. He is a God who speaks to his followers and gives wisdom and understanding. He is not like these false gods that they're talking about. So they're correct when they say there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. But Daniel knows there's a God in heaven, and he has wisdom and power and understanding. Next, we're going to figure out what kind of darkness Daniel is living in and what kind of darkness he's experiencing. His, again, is like Nebuchadnezzar. It's the darkness of an unknown future. Read with me verses 14 to 18. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah he urged them, plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I think it's really important for us to remember what kind of position Daniel was in here. We tend to think, well, he had the king's choice wine and food and he was part of the king's inner circle of wise men and he probably lived and worked at the palace. But the truth is, he was a captive. He was an exile, he was an Israelite, and at the time when he was a young man, the Babylonians came in, conquered his country, and dragged him away to Babylon, and forced him and scripted him to work for the king and to serve this foreign king. So his life is already um, a little bit difficult. And in spite of those difficulties, now there's a death sentence on his head. In spite of the fact that he has acted with wisdom and understanding and always satisfied the king up until this point, it doesn't matter now. Daniel and his friends are going to be executed and they are powerless to oppose the king's decree. They don't even have the voice of a citizen. So this is Daniel's darkness that he's living in. This whole chapter has so many wonderful contrasts in it, but look at this powerful, ruling king who can execute any order he wants. He's living in darkness. And Daniel, who's his powerless captive who can't even preserve his own life, he's living in darkness too. Both of them full of uncertainty and fear about the future, but they respond so differently. Your Bible tells you Daniel responded with discernment and tact. Another translation said with discernment and discretion. Discernment or wisdom. I think that's so important. We talked so much last week about discernment. Daniel isn't acting in a way that is desperate or deceived. He's instead acting with wisdom. And ultimately, wisdom is being obedient. Because wisdom is simply knowledge properly applied. I'll give you a second to think that through. Knowledge properly applied. It is not enough to know truth. Wisdom is acting based on that truth. Daniel had lived his entire life with the knowledge of who God was. He knew how God had acted in the past with Israel. He knew what kind of promises God had made to his covenant future. Daniel chooses to act based on that knowledge. He's not acting based on fear or insecurity. He's acting based on the knowledge of who God is and how he has interacted with his people. And that makes all the difference. Instead of being led to sin like King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's darkness leads him to prayer. He calls his friends into his home and he asks them to pray. And I thought it was an absolutely perfect prayer. He says Pray for mercy. That's it. Pray for mercy from the God in heaven. And again, if his life is a testimony of faith and obedience this is a prayer of great and profound faith he's not begging god oh god reveal the vision let me learn it before any of the magicians do he's not saying rescue us out of this terrible situation he's not saying make the king die he's not prescribing to god how he should intervene in this experience he's just asking god for mercy i thought that was so compelling i spent a little time studying mercy And in the Old Testament, the word mercy and compassion are used interchangeably. They're often used the same way, but the Old Testament concept of mercy is not really uh, exactly the way we think of mercy and compassion today. A number of theologians think the Old Testament concept of mercy is pivotal to understanding God, the actions and the attributes of God. We tend to think of mercy as tender love, compassionate love, faithful love, And that's very accurate. But Old Testament mercy also has a component of great strength and sovereign control and power. So when you read about mercy in the Old Testament, it's that combination of faithful, gentle, tender love combined with absolute power and strength. That's the kind of mercy that God demonstrates and that's the kind of mercy that Daniel is asking for his. It's like a weaker person... Coming before God, the protector, and just saying, I need a savior. I need your help. But not prescribing to God how he should solve this problem. Not giving God a big long list. Saying, I give you the freedom. Use whatever means. Use whatever method to meet my needs. Mercy is God simply responding to our needs. And God in his power and his strength gets to choose the method and the means that he will respond. God gets to choose how he's going to protect. To act with faith and obedience requires that we trust in God's mercy. And merciful is one of the ways God describes himself. In Exodus 34, he said, the Lord, the Lord God, the merciful and gracious God. Don't ever think that mercy just means gentle, tender love. When you read about God's mercy, always remember it contains this element of God's strength and his power and his control. And this prayer for mercy is a great example of a prayer of faith. I think it goes on the list of those little prayers that could never fail. Pray for mercy. Recently, I said goodbye to my oldest son. He was leaving for his second year away at school. And his car was loaded up, and it was early and still dark one morning, and we stood in the driveway and said goodbye. He drove off. I left for my morning run, and I always pray during my run. And this morning I was crying, crying and praying, and just hard to see those boys drive away. That's always hard for me. He was leaving again. And as I was praying, I was just pouring out this list to God God, keep him safe on the road. God, don't let his car break down. God, when he gets there, give him more godly, wonderful friends. God, he needs a great mentor this year, and I need for you to protect him from this, and I need you to not let him get into this, and I need, I need, I need, and I'm running, and I'm crying, and I'm praying, and I'm still full of anxiety. There's no peace in this prayer, and I'm not kidding you. God interrupted me and said, Pray Daniel's prayer. Pray Daniel's prayer. And I thought, okay, God, I want your mercy in this boy's life. Whatever that means, whatever you choose to do, however you choose to do it, bring your mercy to his life. Peace. Peace. That's a prayer that recognizes who God is and what God has done and what God has promised. Like so many of you, I have all these stories that I've been learning my whole life, telling me who God is and what he's promised. And I have my own experiences, too. When God steps into my times of darkness and uncertainty, and he shows me who he is, and he proves to me he is not this false Babylonian God who doesn't interact with his people. He's a God who intervenes, who wants to be known, who wants to bring wisdom and understanding into our circumstances, And he's a God who wants to offer his mercy. We can trust his mercy. Daniel knows it, and that's why we see it in that simple prayer there. I think it's a prayer of great faith. And then mercy arrives very quickly. Read with me. We're going to begin in verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. God knows what is in the darkness. This is such a great example. Daniel's been faithful and he's obedient. And when God responds and mercy arrives, he immediately turns it into this beautiful it's like a psalm of praise, of thanksgiving and praise there, thanking God. I hope you spent some time this week um, meditating, like Daniel did here, on the attributes and the actions of God. Who is he? What has he done? When we stop and think through those things, it really changes our focus and our perspective. And Daniel's just focusing on that here. He is the sovereign God. He's controlling the seasons. He's controlling the leadership and the countries that will rise and fall. There's nothing that surprises him or catches him off guard. And it's just like that for us to do. Nothing that happens in our life surprises God because he knows what is in the darkness. So just like Daniel, it's our responsibility to take our worries and anxieties to God and to trust in his mercy. I loved this image. It's almost like a movie. As it it was getting dark and night was falling, there were just four people in Babylon praying for mercy. We don't have any indication that anybody else was praying to the God of heaven. Four people praying for mercy, and the scripture tells us before day broke the next morning, God gave Daniel the vision. Mercy showed up. And Daniel immediately says, Take me to the king. I'm going to interpret the dream for him. Now the king responds with an interesting question. He says, Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw? Again, we see Nebuchadnezzar looking to men for wisdom and understanding. He's not looking to God, but Daniel's a great teacher. He points him to God. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel makes it very clear, no, man is not able. The astrologers got that part right. But Daniel proclaims there is a God in heaven, and he can give us truth and understanding. Daniel goes on, and he explains the vision. This is a long section here. We're going to read part of it together, beginning in verse 29. And this is the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had that disturbed him that he couldn't understand. And during the night, God showed Daniel this vision, and he helped him understand it. As you were lying there, O King, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O King, may know and in the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O King, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. The rock struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chafe on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel is quick to point to God, always pointing to God. I don't have the answer, but God's given me the vision so you can have the answer. God wants to bring knowledge and understanding to our darkness. Knowledge and understanding come from God alone. We need not look to men for knowledge and wisdom. Job 12.13 says, To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. And one of my favorite promises, James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. The vision, the wisdom, the understanding comes from God. And Daniel begins to explain this vision of an enormous statue. And the different parts of the statue are representing different kingdoms that will rise to power and then fall, all in sequence. These were the events that were going to happen in the near future, which near future... Is a broad term. In this instance, it means about a 1,000 years. And if you're a good student of history, you can line these things up with the history of the ancient world and you can identify which nations rose to power that were represented on this statue. And you can even look to the words of Jesus. In Luke 21, Jesus referred to this time in history. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled It was God's divine order in history that Israel would be dominated by Gentile countries for a specific period of time. And that's what the statue represents. So let's break down the statue just a little bit. He starts out with the statue has a head of pure gold. And he says, this represents Babylon. This represents King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold. God has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Remember, prophecy is God telling us who he is. And God's telling us right there, he's the one who has power and might and glory. And the only reason Nebuchadnezzar has it is because God has ordained it and God has given it to them. Babylon reigned from 612 to 539 B.C. And the message here is very clear. They reigned because God gave them dominance and God gave them power. The next part of the statue is the chest and the arms of silver. And if you line this up with history, this is the time of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Great united the Persian Empire. This was the largest empire of the world at that day. And they came in, and Babylon crumpled. Babylon was no longer the world power, and now it was all about Persia. The Persians dominated from 539 to 331 B.C. Next, they talk about the belly and thigh of bronze. And as I read this, I kept watching for the buns of steel. Did any of you think that was going to show up in here somewhere? It's not in here. (laughs) So, belly and thigh of bronze, that's the next part of the statue. That's the next kingdom, the next Gentile kingdom that's going to rise to power. And this represents the, the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire lasted from 331 to 63 B.C. They were next. Next, this was the really interesting part. When they talk about the next empire, it's the legs, the legs of iron. And if you follow your history again, this is Rome, the mighty Roman Empire from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. But there was really interesting information and prophecy about Rome here. It said they would be incredibly strong, but they would be a divided kingdom. And they used this illustration of partly iron and partly baked clay. Okay, baked clay is like a terracotta pot that crumbles when it gets too hot or too cold. So if you think of the strength of iron with little pockets of baked clay in there, uh, that's not incredibly strong. Those those are places where the iron loses its strength. And that really is how they described Rome. It's interesting because Rome was characterized by its strengths. They would cruelly conquer all these other groups put them under Roman rule, but would not make them Roman citizens. So the Roman Empire was huge, but it was full of little factions and minority groups who were never assimilated into real Roman culture, but they had to fall under Roman law. This is when we read about the times of Jesus and his disciples. Most of the disciples were not Roman citizens, but they all had to submit to Roman law. Well, when that happens, and it's not a united people, Factions occur, um, unrest occurs, and the country becomes less stable. That's exactly what happened in Rome. So when it talks about this mixed, uh, mixed country, divided strength, with steel and with clay, that's what they're talking about in Rome. So that's the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees and that's the prophecy about the future. It's about political change. It's about Gentile empires that are going to rise to power and then fall away. And the next group will come in and the next group behind them. And if you remember, prophecy is all about telling who God is, revealing who God is. That's what we learn in there, that God is determining who will rise to power, and who will fall. But the other portion of prophecy, remember, is talking about God's truth. We really see God's truth when it talks about the part of the prophecy that hasn't happened yet, that distant prophecy. And that's the part where it talks about the rock, the rock that was not cut by human hands, the rock that will ultimately reduce all those kingdoms to dust. Verse 44... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The statue was all about human kingdoms, worldly, Gentile empires that would rise and fall. This is not a human kingdom that God is talking about. God is the one who has dispensed his authority to these Gentile kingdoms for a period of time. And one day, God will shift that authority to Jesus Christ. Jesus will reign on earth. Sin and Satan will be subdued. This is God's original destiny for man. This is a part of the far distant prophecy that hasn't happened yet. And Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the foundation for this future kingdom. I love that prophecy all through the Bible is so consistent. The different prophets spoke from different countries at different times, but they were not speaking their own words. They were speaking God's word, and that's why it's consistent. This concept of Jesus as the rock. The stone, the foundation of God's kingdom, is talked about many other places in the Bible. Isaiah talked about it. Isaiah 28:16. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And then in Revelation, which is full of prophecy about this future day, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The psalmist talks about this concept. Psalm 118.22, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Acts 4, Peter's talking to the people and trying to persuade them about the person of Jesus, and he says, This Jesus who you crucified, he is the stone. And he quotes Psalm 118. He is the capstone of God's kingdom. We're living in this in-between time. We're living in between Jesus' first coming when he was born a baby and lived and had his disciples and his followers that he taught and he died on the cross and he was resurrected. Scripture tells us, the prophets tell us, that Jesus will come again a second time. This time he will not be put on a cross and he will not die. This time he will rule and God will transfer all authority to him. This is the far distant future prophecy that we're talking about here. So we live in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And in these prophecies in Daniel, we live in between the first set, the Gentile kingdoms that will rise to power, and the second set, the day when God's kingdom will reign forever. I love the description that we have in Revelation of this future kingdom. This is God's truth being revealed to us in Revelation 21 says, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the new kingdom that's founded on the stone that was not cut by human hands, that is Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 22, the new kingdom is described as a place where there will be no more darkness. There will be no night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. When that day comes and we live in the presence of God, his glory will shine so brightly, there will literally be no more darkness. Figuratively, there will be no more darkness in our lives either, these times of uncertainty. God brings revelation and wisdom and understanding into darkness. He does it for Daniel and for King Nebuchadnezzar, for the Babylonians there's wisdom and understanding, and for the Israelites as well, and for us, for anyone who will bother to read his word and study it. Prophecy and revelation brings perspective, encouragement, and peace. Listen to how the king responded and replied when Daniel explained this prophecy to him. From verse 47, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For the mighty king, who thinks he's in control of everything, this brings perspective. God is in control. God is exercising his power and his authority. And for the oppressed captive, this brings great encouragement. Don't worry about the oppressors. God is in control. God is determining the exact times and the exact places so that you can know him and so that the world will know him. God is moving everything towards his appointed purposes. We can trust these truths. We can find peace in these truths, even in times of darkness. Actually, darkness is simply a means to reveal who God is and to reveal his truth. In this instance and in our own lives, darkness can be a conduit for God's mercy. So, if this is true, how do we respond to darkness? To those terrifying times when we're running and crying and praying and begging God to intervene, when we don't know what's coming in the future, when we're worried and we can't sleep and we're anxious. We have some great examples. We have some great applications here about how to respond to darkness, We seek God in the darkness, just like Daniel did. He went home and he prayed. That's powerful. (laughs) Go home and pray, ladies. Don't go out and talk among all your friends. Uh, Go home and pray and consider praying for mercy. That's a great way to handle darkness. Another great application is to trust that God puts you in the darkness to show you who he is and to show you his truth. Remember, he's determining the exact times and the exact places so you will reach out for him. Sometimes those places are places of darkness. And an important instruction here in the darkness, don't run away looking for God and other things. Don't act like Nebuchadnezzar pursuing astrologers and sorcerers and enchanters don't look for wisdom in men. These things are idols, and they're false. And Scripture tells us when you chase after worthless idols, you become worthless yourselves. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, Amy, I haven't carved any little idol and put it on a shelf and bowed down in front of it in my house. We don't do it quite like that anymore, but we do have our idols. Anything that we put our confidence and our trust in, When it's supposed to be going to God, it's an idol. Maybe it's your health or your bank account or your plans, life working out according to the way you want them to be. Maybe it's the well-being of your children. If your confidence and your trust is in those things, then those things are idols. What we learn from this is that we don't need to chase after idols when we're in a time of darkness. We need to chase after God. These are the responses of faith and obedience in a dark world. And when we respond that way in a dark world, God is demonstrated and glorified and revealed in our actions. It occurred to me that when we live with faith and obedience, we get to live like prophets because we are proclaiming God and we are proclaiming truth. And the truth is, there's no darkness too dark for the God of heaven. Listen to these beautiful words from Psalm 129. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. That's a picture of a future day. We get to have a little bit of that day now, because we serve and know a God who comes into the darkness with us. Let's pray. Great God, you are the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, and the King of kings, and you are the revealer of mysteries. And we're just in awe that you'll condescend to know us and to have a relationship with us. I'm thanking you for your word, for the words of the prophets, for all the ways that you show us who you are and enter into a relationship with us. My prayer is that through your spirit, you will give us strength to act with wisdom, to know your word and to act upon it, Lord, and to be women of faith and obedience. And my prayer is that we can do these things not for our own well-being, Lord, but for your glory and your honor so that you can be displayed and revealed in our world. Ask these things in your mighty name. Amen.